Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. That means we truly depend on you in order to bring this resource to you. If you don't already support us financially, you could do so. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see our three friendly yellow buttons there. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Click on one of them and fill that out. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, September 26th, 2018. going to finish up our little mini-series that we've been having with uh, Alistair Begg today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses... (gasps) Self-appointed apostles and apostolettes and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we should be buying and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works over and again. We demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that's put forward for consumption by the average evangelical, far from biblical, far from what God's Word says, it's just generally a mess out there. Now, uh, we've been listening to a little mini-series, a sermon series, uh, delivered by Pastor Alistair Begg. He is a Reformed fellow, and uh, we've been listening as he's been exegeting portions of Ephesians 6, especially the portion as it relates to slaves obeying your masters. And the reason I'm doing that is because I thought it was a good resource, uh, a fine exegetical look at that particular portion of Scripture as it relates to good works and the impact that the gospel has, being regenerate has, on uh, how we do our work, you know, and things like that. By the way, the majority, vast majority of your good works are done in your ordinary life as husband, wife, father, mother, employee, employer. Yeah, this is where the vast majority of our good works uh, are accomplished, the ones that Christ has instructed us to do. And Ephesians 6 makes that very clear, that these are good works. These are pleasing in God's sight. And so when it comes to your good works, you do not have to find some mysterious, unique dream destiny to fulfill 
nor do you have to travel to Africa and uh, and dig freshwater wells. Not that there's anything wrong with that. That is a good work. But again, the vast majority of your good works are accomplished in your ordinary life. So all of that being said, let's uh, head back as we listen to Alistair Begg wrap up this little mini-series that he's done on Ephesians 6 in the name of the message Slaves and Masters. This is part three by Alistair Begg. Here we go. Well, I invite you to turn to the passage we were in this morning. As promised, I said we would come back to this. We left it hanging. And uh, Ephesians and chapter 6, begin at verse 5. If you have it open there, once you're there, let's just actually read the essentially parallel few verses in Paul's letter to Colossae which you'll find in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, uh, in this little section here in Colossians, Paul is doing essentially what he's done in Ephesus. Uh, It's it's not surprising when people have a second try at their sermons or their songs, and uh, Paul uh, has another uh, run at the same material, wives to husbands, children, and parents. And then from verse 22... Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And uh, you'll probably just keep a finger there so that as we uh, move back in between them, I'll make reference to both passages as we go. So a brief prayer together. Father, thank you that of all the places we might be tonight, you've gathered us here. It's a peculiar joy at the end of this day, to lift our voices in praise to you, the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For without you, we would be living on Dead End Street. Without you, we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. We would still be following the the ways of a world that is lost without you. And what a wonder it is that uh, your grace Uh, came and shone into our hearts. For some of us, when we were small, and for others along the way, some rescued out of chaos, and others of us saved from that potential chaos. And every day and all day, it is your saving and keeping power that uh, guards and guides and sustains us. And so that when we turn to the Bible, we want not simply to receive instruction that we can understand and practical ideas that we can apply. But we do earnestly want to meet with you, the living God. We want to have a life-changing encounter with you. And to this end, we seek you as we turn to the Bible now, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can tell from the reference before you, uh, we are looking now again for the third time at Paul's instruction that he gives to slaves and to their masters. And we have said on each occasion that the 
particulars of this instruction here directed to the believers in the Colossi Valley uh, has uh, particular elements to it. Uh, Most obviously, the real distinction between the reality of a slavery that held these individuals in bondage and our circumstances tonight, which I think I can safely say knows nothing of that kind of enslavement. And so we want to make sure that we understand that he wrote this to Ephesus. He didn't write it to 21st century Cleveland. However, when we understand the historical context in which the Scriptures are set, then we may safely and rightly apply the principles that are contained in the Bible uh, to our circumstances. And uh, so it is that we seek to apply them in our everyday life and in the marketplace, particularly of public relations and employment and the role of those who act uh, in terms of the labor force and those who would be in the position of uh, guiding that labor force. Uh, We're not enslaved, but we do sell ourselves into a measure of bondage when we accept a contract and when we sign up for employment. I was talking with somebody the other day about a job for, for whom one of their family members had applied and I think received, and I was asking about how it works, and I was informed that uh, uh, there are three 12-hour shifts, and those three 12-hour shifts are then uh, indication of a full-time contract. It's quite remarkable that 36 hours can be full-time, but nevertheless, uh, there it is. And so that individual, in signing up, has essentially sold 36 hours of their lives to their employer, and the employer has a responsibility to frame what those hours will mean, and the employee has a responsibility to live their Christian life uh, within that context. Now, it is in light of that that we were considering Paul's very clear directive, and he makes his uh, statements in a way that would be hard for us to misunderstand. It is observable that he spends more time addressing slaves than he does addressing masters. Now, this may actually be because of the social makeup of the church uh, to which he's writing. Uh, What I mean by that is that there were probably far more people in the congregation for whom the designation slaves fitted than that of masters. Uh, That would be, I think, in accord with his uh, address to the Corinthians when he says to them, "'Consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you were mighty, not many of you were powerful.'" In other words, he says, "'Most of you have come from fairly ordinary circumstances. Most of you, if you like, in common parlance, would be part of the everyday workforce.'" It also is in keeping with what you discover when Peter writes in a similar way in his letter and in 1 Peter 2. You can check that. And in that, as he gives directives along similar lines, he never ever addresses the masters. He only gives instruction for the servants and directs them as to how they might live as the servants of God. The possibility being that those who are on the receiving end of his letter are not in the ruling class or in the position of masters of slaves at all. Uh, 
Now, that is conjecture, of course. It is not a main thing, and it is not a plain thing, but I can give it to you for your consideration. What is really main and plain is that the gospel is absolutely revolutionary. It is revolutionary. Uh, In reading from Colossians chapter 3, if you have your finger in there, as I suggested you might, you will notice that in verse 11, you have a similar statement to what you have in Galatians chapter 3. Paul has uh, pointed out to these folks in the same way as he does in Galatians that there is no Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ is everything. He's absolutely everything. And so when a man or a woman becomes a new creation, then not only does that radically alter one's relationship with the living God, but creates it, actually, in Christ. But it also means that in that new creation, uh, we are brought into a society uh, where barriers that separate us from one another in the events of everyday life, those barriers are then abolished in Jesus. That's That's what the Bible says. Now, it's very, very important that we, underst- that we understand that, that this happens in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it alters our relationships at a fundamental level. In other words, the gospel does what the world endeavors to do and cannot do, and that is create union of heart and mind amongst those who, by dint of their background, their culture, their race, their aptitude, their giftedness, or their status, are within the framework of society almost inevitably separated from one another. Where are you going to get the slave owner and the slave sitting side by side? Not at the local coffee shop, not in the bazaar, not in the gatherings for social engagement, but only in the church. And that is exactly what has happened here to these believers in the churches to whom Paul writes. Now, what we need to realize is that it immediately then sets up a question and an inevitable question, which is, well, if that is the case, and if those essential barriers are broken down in the gospel, how does that then work in the ongoing circumstances of where one is in bondage as a slave and the other is actually a master? And the answer to that is as follows. First of all, uh, regeneration does not remove the slave-master distinction. In the same way, that regeneration does not alter contracts. If uh, you owed $10,000 to the bank on a Friday afternoon and you went to an evangelistic crusade on the Saturday, and you became a Christian on that Saturday evening, on the Sunday when you showed up at church, you still owed $10,000 to the bank. Regeneration did not alter your contract. In the same way that if you were married and you became a Christian, it didn't alter your relationship with your spouse. 
It changed your relationship with the Father, and it brought a dimension to your relationship with your wife. But it did not actually change it, because those relationships of slave and master are earthly relationships, as Paul says, or, as it translates it in the King James Version, they are relationships according to the flesh. So think about it. The uh, Christian master and the Christian slave in the context of everyday work, uh, live with a very clear line of demarcation. The boss is the boss. The employee is the employee. They may treat each other respectively and respectably, but in actual fact, they are distinguished from one another. But within the framework of the church, when you move from Monday through Saturday into Sunday, and everyone comes into the fellowship of God's people and unites to sing God's praise and bows to seek his forgiveness and so on, in that context, it may transpire that the slave is actually a leader in the church. The slave may actually be an elder in the church. Uh, because the slave is a man of um, spiritual maturity. So you have this very interesting juxtaposition, whereby the slave who Monday through Friday is saying, yes, sir, yes, sir, on Sunday is giving thanks to God for the elements in the celebration of communion, and the slave owner or his master is under, in every real sense, the jurisdiction of that slave who exercises authority as one set apart to it, as one who watches over the souls of men and women, including the soul of his boss. Now, when you think about that, and it strikes you as a little strange, you realize why it is, because most churches are not prepared to even consider this as a possibility, that most who serve as elders end up moving, if you like, just uh, uh, one little slide over from the office of significance that they, in, that they find themselves in during the week into now another office of significance in the church. So the, the, the people who run the business are usually looked to as to be the ones who run the church. Well, why? Uh, running a business is not necessarily akin to spiritual maturity. So the distinctions that exist within the workforce are changed, not uh, radically removed, but are changed within the context of the church. In the workplace, the fact that the slave owner and the employee may be brothers must not, says Paul very clearly here, become an opportunity and occasion for either one of them to take advantage of the circumstances so that the slave must not then say, well, my boss is my brother in Jesus, therefore I can slack off. But rather, because he is my brother in Jesus, it ought to be an opportunity to display an even more exemplary faithfulness. You see, because what Paul is saying here, when you look at the passage carefully, is that in a sense, the slave is no longer really serving men, but is serving Christ. So that is why he makes it so perfectly clear there in verse 6. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, or as those who are serving the Lord, Colossians 3, and not serving men. 
Now, what happens in that, and this is the significance of it, is that when this is really engaged, then two things are true. Number one, the employee's work is transformed. And number two, the employee's witness is enhanced. Work transformed and witness enhanced. Because the testimony of the employee in circumstances that may often be very, very undesirable, socially unacceptable, nothing that they would want to do, when in that context they then display the faithfulness that is represented in their acknowledgement that they are serving the Lord Jesus ultimately, then the gospel is commended. And not only uh, those who look on, but those who are part and parcel with that individual will have occasion to say, why is it that this lady, this fellow, uh, is as diligent, is as responsive, is as kind, is as punctual, is as engaged as they are? Why wouldn't they just be doing as little as they possibly could? After all, look at the circumstances in which they find themselves. Well, what is it? Uh, First of all, and I'll just point out a couple of things to you. First of all, the Christian slave, and if I say slave, you can, in your head, you can say employee. If I say employee, uh, you can, in your head, say slave. Now, the Christian slave has a different incentive and a different motivation. All right? Uh, As we saw this morning, our earthly masters we approach with fear and trembling, not because they tyrannize us, but because we're fearful of um, slighting the cause of Jesus. We approach them with a sincerity of heart as we would Christ. And then in verse 6, but our incentive and our motivation is not on the basis of eye service. Uh, Now, that may mean uh, the kind of eye service that looks out to see if the boss is coming, and if they're not coming, then we can do as little as possible, or the kind of eye gaze that is the eye gaze of looking to see how we can attract favor by the boss, how we can put on a little bit of a display, how we can develop the fine art of giving an appearance of obedience, of giving an appearance of diligence, when in actual fact the reality is not the case. In other words, it's just a contrary. It is not uh, the kind of heartfelt engagement that is called for. Now, as I mentioned in passing this morning, I recognize that in the framework that is mine in which to serve, I don't have the opportunity that many of you do, uh, that most of you do, along with my colleagues. I mean, we serve together, we have um, relationships with one another and so on. But in actual fact, I would imagine that it's pretty tough out there. And I think it must be tough in a workplace, when the kind of behavior that Paul says is not to be part and parcel of the Christian employee, i.e., the kind of behavior that is eye service, that is either currying favor, that is all, that, that the individual in, in, the, in the factory or in the workplace is constantly trying to put herself in the position where she's seen in the best light where she manages to make it uh, obvious to those who are, to whom she reports that she really is a quite remarkable person and so on. It's got, it's got to be pretty difficult uh, dealing with that kind of thing. When that kind of behavior, which Paul says should not mark the Christian employee, when that kind of behavior is not only practiced, but then it is apparently rewarded. 
And when you find yourself coming up for your annual review, and the person that you know is a complete rascal and a con artist, is now advancing in the company, and you, who are trying to do what you're doing by Christian principles, and not operating on the basis of eye service, but on the basis of a heartfelt commitment to Jesus, you find yourself left on the side. What do we do then? Well, you go and you get the CD of Christopher Ashe on Psalm 37, and you work your way back through it. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Trust in the Lord and do good. Now again, as we think in terms of slavery, as I said to you this morning, many of the songs that have come out of slavery and those who have experienced the deprivation have often sung in a way that is pointed away from the circumstances because they are so bad. And as I've told you many times, Mahalia Jackson is one of my favorites. And when she sings, you know, why should I feel discouraged? And why should the shadows come? And why should my heart seem lonely and long for heaven and home? Why should I? Because after all, the circumstances are are such that they are overwhelming. When Jesus is my captain, my constant friend is he. And his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. You see, the gospel really does make a difference. Is it really a quite sad thing for many of us that when we think in terms of the gospel, we think in such an atomized kind of way. The gospel is this, and this is what it means, and this is how you know it, and this is what you do with it. But in actual fact, the gospel is, is so vast and so huge, isn't it? that we have been saved from sin's penalty, as they taught us in Sunday school, that we are being saved from sin's power, that one day we will be saved from sin's presence. And so how is the gospel then manifest in the workplace uh, that is represented in the community of Parkside Church? Well, what Paul says is, the way you're really going to make a stab for the gospel is by you the, the incentive according towards, towards which you operate and the motivation of your heart. Take exhibit one, a pagan slave. Here's a pagan slave. Here's a pagan employee. And he or she obeys obeys in everything, is fastidious, out of just fear of their earthly boss or out of an ingratiating desire to be regarded as better than they are. That's that's, uh, employee number one. Employee number two, the Christian employee, now is obeying in everything, but for an entirely different reason. Because the Christian employee is a servant of Christ. And that is the emphasis that runs like a thread all the way through both the Ephesian passage and the Colossian passage. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond service of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. That's the second thing to notice, that the Christian employee renders wholehearted service with a good will. Wholehearted service with a good will. Again, if you look in the Colossians passage, I think that's where uh, with a good will comes. Um, I'm looking for it myself. But um, whatever you do, work heartily, heartily for the Lord and not for men. And then... I think with a good will is up here. Yeah, doing the will of God, <laughs> rendering service with a good will. Just read the text, Alistair. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. What does this mean? Well, I think it means this. It means this in part. 
that the most humdrum job, the most humdrum routine job, whatever it is, whatever you can think of or whatever it is you do, becomes a vocation when it is looked on as being God's will. If we are tempted to view our everyday activities as somehow or another a necessary adjunct to getting on with life, either the life of relaxation and entertainment or the subcategory life of worship and involvement, then we're setting ourselves up for a really, really miserable journey all the way to retirement or death. Because that means that we're spending the vast amount of our time engaged in something that we really don't want to do. But we just do it. Paul says... If you really understand what it means to be the servant of Christ, he says, even though your circumstances may be devastating, even though they may be regarded as routine and irrelevant, nevertheless, the most willing service is provided by those who are most focused on pleasing Jesus. I guarantee it. The most willing service is provided by those who are most interested in pleasing Jesus. You can't please your earthly boss, no matter how hard you try. And if that becomes the end product and the end design, then it sets us up for real disappointment. Whatever it is, what do you do? Are you in conveyancing? Even the word scares me, conveyancing, lighting up, writing up land contracts. Woo, you know, there's, there's a job. You know, I don't mean to dismiss it in any way, but it seems really tough. I got a summer job one time in a building society. That's like a mortgage company. And uh, my father had set it up for me, felt it would be good for me. I came home from college. I got in the car. I drove into Leeds. He had worked very hard with this man who oversaw this operation. And uh, I went up onto whatever third or fourth floor it was. And then I went and met the man. And the fellow told me, uh, the man introduced me to a boy who was a young man who was a full-time employee there. And he said, you know, Kevin will look after you. And I said, okay, fine. So I sat down at his desk. And then Kevin explained uh, what happened in the day. He said, you see, there's desks all around here. And uh, we start over here. And we take the files, we take the files out of here. And then uh, once we do something with them, then we put them over there. And then after they have them over there, they put them over there. And then later on, they put them over there, over there, over there, over there. And then we put them back in here. I said, okay. I made it to lunchtime. (laughs) And at lunchtime, before I went out on my break, I said to the fellow, I said, Kevin, this is not personal in any way at all. But uh, I will be back this afternoon, but I will never be back again. Because I can't do this. I cannot spend two and a half months of my life moving files around this room. And I'm sure you're very good at it and everything. And uh, I won't bore you with any further details, but I knew that if I get in the car with my father and tell him I quit after he worked so hard to get me the job, that will not do well. So therefore, during the lunch break, I need to go get myself another job. And so in the lunch break, I got myself another job. So that I tell my father, do you want the good news or the bad news? And uh, the bad news is I quit. The good news is I got a better job. But I understand that. 
And I thought about, golly, what that must be like. Writing contracts, moving files, fixing plumbing, washing windows, planting flowers, mending broken bones, feeding guests, saying, I'll be your server today. Most of our lives are just routine. They're fairly ordinary. I mean, even even, uh, cardiac surgeons, it gives routine. So what are we going to do? Unless we realize what Paul is saying here, that the Christian employee renders wholehearted service to Christ with a good will. All right, we are going to pause right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My mail address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, the balance of today's sermon by Alistair Begg, Slaves and Masters, Part 3. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. presents Church Day Select. I don't know why we have to come to these small group sessions. They're just so boring. Hey, do you find that small groups just aren't that interesting or fun anymore? That's quite literally what I just said. Then we have the product just for you. New from Los Lobos Ministries is Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs. Well, what is it? Simple. Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs are an entire booklet loaded with fill-in-the-blank Bible passages. Aren't we supposed to read the scriptures the way they were originally written? None of you want to spice up your small group Bible studies. With Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs, you can make every passage be about you. Isn't scripture about Jesus? Only if you want it to be. In our postmodern age, it's stupid to think that such a thing as absolute truth actually exists. Every passage is open to interpretation. Read the example. But now that you have been set free from financial debt and have become warriors of God, the fruit you get leads to better sex and eternal life. For the wages of sin are smelly diapers, but the free gift of God is a really good tax return? 
in Jesus Christ our Lord. That was absolutely heretical. Why would anyone butcher scripture like this? Because modern-day Christians like you don't endure sound doctrine. By popular demand, you've appointed leaders in the church who've given your itching ears what they want to hear and haven't looked back since. Ha! Suckers! This is just horrible. If you thought it couldn't get any worse, then you're just as foolish as Naval. We've already expanded the biblical Mad Lib franchise to include alternate Bible translations. That can't be good. You're right! It isn't! We now have Biblical Mad Libs in The Voice, the NIV, the KJV, the NKJV, and, for a limited time only, we have the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation. Wait, doesn't that last one spell? Yes, it does spell fun. Not just fun for you, but for the entire small group. We've even created a Biblical Mad Libs Junior Edition to get the kids twisting scripture from a young age. I would never buy this for my children. Lucky for you, you don't have to. We're handing out free copies to every youth group in the nation. Plus, we're also including a special copy of Elevation Church's The Code Coloring Book for a little extra heretical flavor. You're not going to get away with this. You can't stop us. We're already in control. Resistance is futile. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, everyone. It's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's It's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee. And it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never really in-depth 
exegetes and works through passages of Scripture. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. Uh, uh, the other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great, fantastic way to support Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Media. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208, and let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here's the balance of our sermon by Alistair Begg on uh, Slaves and Masters. This is part two of part three. Here we go. And the third thing that that he points out is that the Christian slave works in the awareness that even though we may be exploited either real or an imagined exploitation, even though we may be exploited now, we will be rewarded then. Knowing, verse 8, that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Every good work is the fruit of God's grace. That's what he says in Ephesians 2, isn't it? That there are good works foreordained for you to do. That work is the fruit of God's grace. And the reward is the reward of grace. And the thing that is so striking is the fact that the master and the slave will stand before God, if you like, at the very same level of things. The master may have spent a lot of time in exotic places, and the slave may have ended up doing very little, and his routine work seemed to be so menial and mundane and almost irrelevant. And now here they find themselves on the other side of eternity, and they both stand side by side, 2 Corinthians 5, in order that they might receive what is due them for the works done when in the body. There's no partiality with God. He doesn't have a special section for the employers. He doesn't have a canteen for those who have done exceptionally well, and another canteen for the people that uh, don't seem to be doing well at all. He doesn't do it now, and he won't do it then. And the incentive is there both for the employee and for the employer, because the master and the slave will stand together. Interestingly, what Paul does there by way of um, encouragement uh, in the Colossians passage, it turns, he turns it the other way around. In the, in the Ephesian passage, he says, uh, encouragingly, uh, you will receive the reward. And in the Colossians passage, he says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Judgment on disobedience, if you like, is as certain as reward for faithfulness. 
Quite daunting, this thought, isn't it? Because salvation is always according to grace, and judgment is always according to works. And although the believer will not be judged in relationship to our standing before God in Christ, the believer, we as believers, will be reckoned with in relationship to the deeds done in our body throughout our life. That's 2 Corinthians 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive that which is due to us for the deeds done while in the body. How that all works without in any way compromising the reality of God's grace, the security of the believer, and so on, we may leave entirely in the custody of God. But we ought not to consider the possibility that we can sidestep it. Whether we are a boss or whether we're an employee. Now, just a final word for the masters. And he only gives just a brief word, doesn't he? They are masters do the same to them. Calvin says, perform your reciprocal duty. Perform your reciprocal duty. What does that mean? Well, I think it means at least this, that in Christ, the employee is asking, does my boss get the work from me that he has the right to expect? Does my boss, do I do, I, do, I do a fair day's work? Do I, or am I a pencil pusher? Am I a clock watcher? Am I an eye pleaser? Am I constantly trying to get out of as much as I possibly can or ingratiate myself at the other end of the spectrum? That's the question that the employee is to be asking. Is my boss receiving from me the labor that is due him or her as a result of my commitment to them and particularly as a result of my professed commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ? Reciprocally, The master then needs to inquire, does my employee receive the benefit from me that they have the right to enjoy? And this, of course, in in relationships, in the workplace, uh, raises all kinds of questions that we could talk about at length. But when you think about uh, the nature of Life at the turn of the century, uh, from the 19th into the 20th century in Britain. It's impossible to consider those circumstances without recognizing the, the absolute license uh, that bosses were taking over their employees, how poorly they were cared for, how children were used as chattels and virtually as slaves, how women uh, were subjugated in jobs that had no uh, niceness to them at all, And all just went along fine. And so somebody has to put up their hand and say, who's going to represent the cause of the employee? And so you have the development of uh, necessary unions. And now the necessary union is because the boss won't do, won't ask this question and get it right. If he asks the question, am I providing the benefit that my employees have the right to enjoy? and the answer is no, then unless the boss changes something, somebody is going to have to make a change. And those of you who have lived your whole life over here may be intrigued to know uh, that the Labour Party in Britain, the Socialist Party in Britain, was begun by a Christian man called Keir Hardy. It wasn't begun by, it wasn't begun by a, a social liberal who was an atheist. 
It was begun by a Christian man who said, it is not right for employers to take advantage of the employees in this way. Why? Because of what the Bible says. To serve Christ as an employee is to ask, does my boss receive what I have promised him under Christ? And the master to ask, does the one under my care receive the benefit that they have right the right to enjoy. And instead of that, am I engaging in threatening behavior? Here we have, this is bullying, if you like, in in contemporary terminology. Masters do the same to them, and stop your bullying. Display grace without qualification, because you have a master with whom there is no partiality. And in one of his masterful little sentences, uh, Singler says, grace transforms threats into encouragement. Grace transforms threats into encouragement. Colossians, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven, and that's the way he treats you. Well, a comment or two by way of conclusion. Let me say to you again that what we have here in the Bible— And what we read here in terms of this instruction is clearly for the redeemed. It is clearly for those who are in Christ. The attempts of our world to achieve these same objectives are myriad, continual, and progressive throughout every generation. And even A superficial knowledge of history reveals the fact that although we as human beings have had a very, 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 very long time to figure this out, we haven't done it. It took ages for slavery to be abolished, but slavery is not abolished. Significant parts of our world are enslaved tonight despite all of the conversations at the highest levels of politics. The trafficking of people, of women, and of children is an epidemic throughout our world. Why is this? Well, you see, if you don't have a Bible, you don't know what to say, because you're going to say, well, we just need a little longer to get it fixed. Well, how long do you actually need? You see, the seeds of disruption and the seeds of decay emerge again, fresh, like dandelions, every jolly spring, springing up when you thought they were gone for good. I say with great respect to the dandelions, please don't write to me. But the fact is that that all of the attempts of the world uh, remain because we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. It's where we began this morning. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We don't want to glorify God. We don't believe in God. We don't care about God. We care about ourselves. Oh, well, and, and Paul says, well, let me tell you how that works. Behind a facade of wisdom, they became fools who would exchange the glory of an immortal God for things that creep and crawl and fly. And as a result of that, God gave them over. He gave them over to it. He said, you want to live in that way? Let me show you what happens to you. What happens to you is clear. Idolatry, immorality, absolute rampant chaos. It's not a present, not a very, very nice picture, is it? But what do we know? You see, a Christian of all people is a realist. Tyranny will not cease until Christ returns. Wars will not cease till Christ returns. 
Jesus, in responding to people, says, you will always have the poor with you. Why did he say that? Because you will. It wasn't a disregard for the poor. He dealt with the issue. He deals with the issue. But he recognizes that oppression and exploitation and human bondage in one form or another will continue in our fallen world. And the answer, and the only answer, is the gospel. Is the gospel. What's the answer to the Me Too movement? It's the gospel. I mean, we just read this stuff about what what you're supposed to have. You're supposed to have one wife or one husband, and then you live with them all the time, and you don't do bad things with anybody else. Can you imagine if we just did that? You see, but we can't do it. We need the gospel to do it. How do you deal with the chaos within the parental structure of our nation? The absolute manifold disobedience that is rampant in so many sectors of our society. Every idea, every scheme, every plan, every notion, shed abroad, disseminated in scholarly magazines, with all the best intentions, bows before the gospel. The boy or the girl needs a new heart. They need Jesus. How do you deal with racism? The gospel. The gospel. You can bust people all around America as much as you like, and you can change them on the outside as much as you try. But the only way that it is transformed is by the power of the gospel. And that's what makes this so amazing to me. And with this, I will finish. Think about this. Consider Paul's approach to the issue. He says, now, I've I've spoken to you about husbands and wives. I'm talking to you now about... um, of parents and children, and now we've moved on to slaves and to masters. He doesn't call a big anti-slavery convention. He doesn't gather together a group of people to create a, an announcement or a, or a declaration or whatever else it is. No, he, he writes a letter. Writes a letter to a rather obscure and unimpressive church, a house church, really, in the Colossae Valley. Writes a letter, a really short letter, to a slave owner. And in that letter to the slave owner, he describes why it is that he must take back his slave. Because his slave, who remains his slave, has become his brother. And long after all of the great declarations have been forgotten. This little letter continues to be read. And the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God brings about change in obscure churches, in backwater provinces of America, in the rural parts of Scotland, in the heart of mainland China, because the gospel and the word of God is the weaponry that has been placed in the hands of the church. What an immense privilege it is to have this opportunity at this point in history. I say to you again, now tomorrow is a great moment another time for you to go back and uh, for us to go back and to prove again that Jesus is our Lord and King.
Father, I thank you that even as we try and work our way through this material, that you are sovereign over all, that you are uh, the God who arrested Saul of Tarsus on that Damascus road, and that you are the God who raises up in peculiar places and at different times uh, those uh, whom you have purpose to use for your glory. What a, what a thrill it's going to be to meet Onesimus. What a joy to talk to Philemon and to sit and to say to one another, isn't it amazing? Uh, the grace of God, amazing. What a Savior we have in Christ. Hear our prayers, Lord, and make us all you want for us to be. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. So, what did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.